0: going to invite you to join me in the reading of God's Word this morning, which will be taken from the Gospel of Matthew chapter 6 beginning with verse 19. I want to encourage you to bring your own Bible to church so that as we read Scripture when things speak to your heart you can underline and make notes and take that back with you so that you can continue to meditate on those portions throughout the week. But if you don't have your Bible with you, you can use the one that is in front of you in the pew rack or you can pull it up on your electronic device. I'm going to be reading the new revised standard version. So hear the word of the Lord. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. If you're new with us, we're in uh, a series called Defying Gravity that is exploring how the path to a good life, the path to abundant life is one of generosity and gratitude. And one of the greatest gravity-defying events of all time was the Ortega Prize. Has anybody heard of this in your history books? This was a $25,000 reward offered in the 1920s by a hotel operator, Raymond Orteig, to the first person who could fly across the Atlantic Ocean between New York City and Paris. And I want to introduce you to three of the competitors. The first, who was a French guy, so I might pronounce his name, mispronounce his name, just warning you ahead of time. The first was René Fonc a World War I French pilot who wanted to arrive in his homeland in style. The interior of his plane was like a small house. There were heavy cabinets and chairs, mahogany tables and a sofa that could be converted into a bed. There was also a cooking area with a small kitchen stocked with cases of wine and champagne. Before takeoff, he had a hot dinner delivered that included clam chowder, roast duck, and, um, and turkey. And to keep it warm, he placed it inside of a heav- heavily insulated cabinet. He even loaded up the plane with all kinds of gifts for his friends. Now, the plane was only designed to carry 20,000 pounds, but once it was fully loaded, it weighed twenty eight thousand pounds, requiring him to retrofit an extra wheel on the tail to support the weight. And ultimately, gravity defeated Fonk. Even with full power, the plane only made it to the end of the runway, where it rolled over a small incline, toppled forward, and bursted into flames. Though Fonk and his navigator made it out, Two other crew members did not. Second was a millionaire named Charles Levine who financed another team that may have had the best chance of winning the prize. He had a great plane and a qualified crew, but he thrived on drama, which prevented him from leading the crew in a way where they could work together as a team. He wanted two pilots ready, and he planned to choose between them on the runway right before the departure to attract more publicity. And he eventually abandoned that idea, but nevertheless chose two flyers, Chamberlain and Bertrade. And these two disagreed on virtually everything from the flight plan to the equipment. And just when it appeared that things could not get more dysfunctional, Levine presented Chamberlain and Bertrade with contracts the night before takeoff, essentially saying that he would not share any money with them that was gained through the publicity on the trip. Bertrade filed or filed a temporary injunction on the flight and they were grounded. Third, Charles Lindbergh. That name might sound familiar, and now the story might sound familiar. Lindbergh was personally involved in every aspect of the challenge. He was in the factory as the plane was being built to make sure that they kept everything very simple. He named the plane the Spirit of St. Louis, which only had one engine to conserve fuel and one seat for one pilot. Lindbergh famously trimmed excess paper from the edges of the navigational charts to save on weight. There were no luxuries, not even a Ford windshield. Unable to see straight ahead, he navigated by using a side window with a small periscope to see what was ahead of him. Lindbergh landed near Paris on May 21st, 1927, 33 and a half hours after he took off from New York, and thousands of cheering people waited for him. Do you know what his nickname was? The press dubbed him Lucky Lindy in honor of his success. Now, it's important to remember that in those days, A flight from New York to Paris was a big deal. It was an enormous challenge, and it didn't happen by luck. It took careful planning and intentionality. And the same is true when it comes to generosity. It doesn't happen by luck. It happens by design. As we learned last week, 45% of US citizens give no money to charitable organizations of any kind. Zero, zilch. (laughs) But I don't think it's because they are all a bunch of stingy people. In fact, many probably wish that they could do more and hope to do more in the future. The problem is that one way or another We are like the competitors for the Ortega Prize. Some of us, like Fonk, so weighed down by the gravity of possessions that we are unable to experience the freedom of generosity. And others are like Levine. They have competing financial goals and conflicting personal values, and they lack basic communication skills, especially when the topic is money. In either case, it is often difficult to break free from the culture of more. However, if you want your journey to be a generous one, you need to be like Lindbergh, remembering that generosity happens by design. Those who are generous know that to make a real contribution of their time and money, they need to think very carefully about what they want to accomplish. Then they need to plan a strategy that fits their other financial and time allocations. And then they must muster the courage and the faith to act. Just as Lucky Lindy did not count on good fortune, we must have a clear plan of action if we want to live a generous life. And when we look at some of the most generous people in our families and communities, we discover that they have three secrets. Would you like to know what those secrets are this morning? The first secret is that they make a budget. Budgets remind us that all of our finances matter to God. I just want to say that again. Budgets remind us that all of our finances matter to God. And if faith is truly central in our lives, we must begin with the portion of our income that we plan to invest in the work of God's kingdom. And if we do not plan this first, we will simply offer God our leftovers. And as we all know, by the time that all the other bills have been paid, the leftovers are often non-existent. Discipleship cannot begin after spending ends. And the Bible is clear that we are called to provide for our own needs and for the needs of our families. Such provision creates a safe environment in which people can generously use their gifts and graces for others because their needs are being met. It provides a safe place and even a place of abundance where marriages can prosper and children can develop emotional and physical health. Paul says to Timothy, and this will be projected on the screen, teach these things so that families will be without fault. But if someone does not provide for their own family, and especially for a member of their household, they have denied the faith. They are worse than those who have no faith. That comes from 1 Timothy 5, verses 7 and 8. Now, of course, Paul is talking to people who have the physical and mental ability to do this, and those that did not were important members of the family worthy of special protection and support. Most of us here know that the best way to ensure ensure the support of ourselves and our families, including those that are most vulnerable in our families, and also have something to generously share with others is to create a budget. And to help us better understand how a budget can help us, I want you to check out this video on the screen about a ropes course. I'm gonna go through the safety briefing real quick so it can get you in the trees as quick as possible. So you'll have two clips on you and one of them is always gonna be locked and one is always gonna be unlocked. And this is so that you're always locked into the course. You cannot detach from the course at any point until you're on the ground basically. So this is the key that will allow you to move throughout the course and stay safely attached at all times. So the way this works is you're gonna get your unlocked clip, put it over the cable Slide it under here and get that little barrel piece and push it up in there and you'll hear a click and now you are safely attached to the course. I'm coming to my first bridge or element and we'll find another tweezel. Put your clip on, attach, and now you can walk across the bridge. If at any point you are to slip off the bridge, your clips will catch you and you will be fine. Bonsai. So negotiating finances is like navigating a ropes course and our budget is like the carabiner, the metal clip that allows us to engage and disengage as needed. A budget keeps us safely attached during our gravity defying journey. While others are grounded, we can move with confidence toward our financial goals when we meet the basic needs of life our money is used in ways that are in concert with god's will and we defy gravity the financial gravity that pulls us we defy that and are set free from a culture of more so using a budget helps us to look at the level of spending that is pleasing to god in each area of life so that we can balance our resources accordingly. Our generosity to others will not happen by accident. It can happen, however, when we become serious about being good stewards of our income and make appropriate allocations in every area of our financial world. We gain that ability when we clip ourselves to the safety line with a budget. Now the second secret of generous people is that they live simply. There's a great phrase that says, live simply so that others can simply live. Generous people know how to live simply. If you want to live within your means, then try to keep things simple. You can observe this in the buying decisions of many generous people, including those that are very wealthy. While higher income individuals often have a great deal more of income and assets, many keep life simple in terms of what they possess. And you don't have to do much research on this topic to see what was discovered in a book years ago titled The Millionaire Next Door. It says that often people of high net worth live in average homes, drive used cars, and do not wear the most expensive clothes. It's like they have nothing to prove and have a clear vision that helps them to distinguish between their wants and their needs. In fact, these people often gain their wealth through careful attention to how much money is moving in and out of their businesses, and they carry this practice over into their family life. The discipline of The disciplines of frugality, saving, and working on a budget pushes them toward a life of simplicity. The principle of simplicity is the single most effective tool that can be employed by people who want to escape the financial gravity of our culture. But one problem is that people caught up in the culture of more see simplicity in terms of absence they assume that simple means that their bed is hard, the car is unreliable, and their clothes are scratchy. (laughs) And seen in this way, few people want to practice simplicity. Assuming that happiness awaits them in the ads on their computer or in the deals offered by local retailers, they pursue material things thoughtlessly, compulsively, and with abandon, which is why most people inexplicably find their cabinets, drawers, closets, basements, attics, and sometimes even storage units full of stuff that they do not need and cannot use. Our consumption inevitably leaves a trail. And if you want an interesting exercise, just start resourcing how we deal with trash in our country. And you'll get an idea of what our consumption, how our consumption leaves a trail. So two weeks ago, at the end of the message, I issued a clean-out challenge asking you to clean out an area of your home and then to reflect on how it makes you feel. And I hope that you gave it a try. Those who engage in this kind of exercise report that they find freedom and letting go of unneeded items and this is one of the gifts of simplicity freedom it's freedom from the pressures of debt has anybody felt the pressures of debt or felt enslaved to debt at some point in their life a life of simplicity gives us freedom from the pressures of debt and from the complexity of having more than we need Keep in mind that living a simple life is not primarily about rules and guidelines, but about the discovery of what brings true fulfillment. Because to gain simplicity, we must identify what brings us real joy in life. And this is what allows us to weed out things that bring us less joy. In other words, simplicity is not about denying yourself all pleasure, but about removing obstacles that prevent you from living your values and accomplishing your mission. And I just wanna say that again, because I think it's very important. God calls us to determine our values first. And if one of our values is to be generous, right, then the life of simplicity will help to remove obstacles that will prevent us from having the ability to be generous because have you ever known what it's like to want to be generous but to feel like you don't have the ability to do so there there was a there was a time where i was i was a very very poor college student and i was worried to death about how i was going to buy christmas presents for my kids And I don't feel like I've, I've ever experienced that kind of internal agony and conflict before, that I wanted to be generous, but I didn't feel like I had the ability to do so. And so using a budget and living a life of simplicity helps us to organize our finances in a way that we can remove obstacles that prevent us from living into our own values and from completing our mission. Paul speaks to people like you and me when he writes the following, and this will be up on the screen. Tell people who are rich at this time not to become egotistical and not to place their hope on their finances, which are uncertain. Instead, they need to hope in God, who richly provides everything for our enjoyment. The principle of simplicity which helps us to sort out our needs and wants, prevents us from placing our hope in our finances and enables us to be content with what we have. No longer do we feel the need to have newer and better. And then finally, the third secret. The third secret of generous people is that they set goals for generosity. They set goals. Paul writes in the passage we just read, tell them to do good, to be rich in the good things they do, to be generous, to share with others. One practice that enables people to make the journey of generosity each year is to set numerical goals for the, go- for the good they hope to do with their time and their money. They pray about God's calling on their lives. They consider what activities bring joy to God and uniquely bring joy to themselves. Then they find ways to participate in what God's already doing. And as these activities are discerned, financial goals for generosity are projected for their annual giving. It's important to note that when we give, we are stepping out in faith and revealing the desire of our hearts to be part of what God is already doing in this world. This is our mission as followers of Jesus Christ. Like Lindbergh, we know what we are about. Our purpose is clear. I find it fascinating that Rick Warren made so much money writing a book called The Purpose-Driven Life, because because it's really not complicated, guys. Our purpose in life is to be like Jesus. And to be like Jesus means to give of ourselves and our resources to the work of God's kingdom. I wish I could have made the millions of dollars simply by saying that. (laughs) If we are going to successfully accomplish this mission, which is to give of ourselves and our resources to the work of God's kingdom, it is important to begin the financial year with goals, including what we hope to contribute to the ministries, organizations, and projects to which God is calling us. And God calls us to give in different ways to different kinds of organizations. It is amazing what we can do, and I want you to hear this, at any income level. It is amazing what we can do at any income level when we set goals for generosity and order our lives accordingly. And I want to tell you, there is a person in our church who every Sunday since I've been here puts $3 in the offering plate. And just as the story of the widow's mite, when I see that in the reports, I give glory to God that even this man who doesn't have very much has the joy and the freedom to contribute his $3 every Sunday. Inevitably, someone will say, well, I can't do that, I can't afford that. (laughs) And if that's how you feel, I would just invite you to reflect on the gentleman that I just mentioned. And if that's how you feel, what I wanna say to you is, you probably have a larger need a bigger need than anyone else to start setting goals. No matter how small. And to start getting serious about your life and your journey. You know, we give our kids a quarter. How many of you guys grew up in church and your parents gave you a coin to give to the offering in Sunday school? And we think, well that's not, what's a quarter gonna do? It's not about the quarter. It's about teaching them to think beyond their own needs, to be generous. Why is it important to set these goals? Because Paul reminds us, when we do these things, we will save a treasure for ourselves that is a good foundation for the future. That way, we can take hold of what is truly life. People say, what's the meaning of life? What does it mean to be happy? It's not rocket science, guys. Paul's biggest worry is that if you and I are not careful that we are gonna settle for a life that is held down by the gravity of our culture and that we will not experience the awesome life that God envisions for us, that we will miss the abundant life promised in Christ but God doesn't want us to have an ordinary life. God wants us to have an extraordinary life. And generosity is the path to that end. God wants us to defy gravity and cross the great distance from being committed consumers to being generous stewards so that we can have abundant life.